turn to Isaiah chapter 7. We're starting Old Testament this morning, um, looking at uh, the promise that was given of uh, Jesus' coming birth. So it's going to be Isaiah chapter 7. If you're new or if you're a guest with us today, we're welcome you're here. Welcome, we're glad you're here. If you need a Bible, there should be some ones in the chairs there, some black ones you can grab and follow along. Feel free to use one of those. If you're online, welcome. Glad you're here as well. And uh, we're diving into Isaiah chapter 7, and then also we're going to touch on Luke chapter 1. So if you've got a bookmark something, you might want to stick it over in Luke chapter 1. We'll get to that a little bit later. Um, so Janet um, was a longtime resident of her small town. And because she had been there her whole life, she uh, was on all these different committees, and she served in the community, and she was part of the, the leadership there. And so one Christmas, she was asked to select some carols that would be suitable for the Christmas tree lighting ceremony for the town, for the, for the, for the community. And Janet wasn't exactly a music person, and so she was a little, wasn't sure what to do. So she went to her pastor and she said, hey, can you give me a list of, like, good Christmas songs, carols that we could use for this thing, which he happily obliged and did. And the next Sunday, he followed up with Janet. He said, hey, Janet, how, I, you know, how'd, how, how'd that go? Did, did the list work for you? Was that, did it work out okay? And she, she was like, yeah, yeah, it was, it was good. Thanks, Pastor. I appreciate it. But you could tell, like, something wasn't quite right. You know, you have those conversations. You're like, yeah, I don't think that's, you said it, but that's not. So like, she kind of pressed in a little bit. He's like, are you sure? Like, did everything work out? And she's like, yeah, no, it was good. It was a good list. She's like, they were just, they were just all so theological. Yeah. I think sometimes in the hustle and bustle of Christmas with all the presents and the parties and the fun and the family and all that kind of stuff, Sometimes we forget that at its origin, at its core, Christmas first and foremost is theological. It's about God. It's not really about us. It's not about us having a good time or getting a break from work. Or, all those things are good, but Christmas primarily is about God and what he did on earth for us. And so we want to take this next few weeks of Advent and press into the theology of Christmas. Specifically, the theology of the incarnation. The incarnation might be a new word for some of you, so let me kind of just give you some definition for that. In its basic sense, incarnation means the act of being made flesh. Some people say it's the act of putting on flesh, because that's kind of the, the, the Christian uh, doctrine of it. It claims that the eternal God, the second member of the Trinity, came down to earth and put humanity on himself in order to meet with us. That God himself came down from heaven to dwell with his creation here on earth. And that is exactly why Jesus' birth has been celebrated across the globe for centuries. Think about it. There's no other birth. There is no other person who is celebrated so widely and in such a uh, demonstrative way across the globe than Jesus Christ. Because it wasn't just about a baby in a manger. It was about God coming down to his people. And that's what we want to press in on and look at. And not only recognize that and celebrate that, but also, what does that mean for us today? The fact that that is true and the fact that that happened, that God did that for us, what does that mean for our lives, for our walk with Jesus on a daily basis? So, here's what I want to see today, what I want to show you today from the scriptures as we start to press into this doctrine that God came down to call us to submission. 
The first thing we're going to see about the incarnation is that when God came down to earth, he came down to call us to submission to himself. So let's pick it up in Isaiah chapter 7. I'm going to start in verse 1. It says, In the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, the son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramalia, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. So the first point I want you to see today from this scripture is that as the waiting warrior, God received shaky faith. As the waiting warrior, God received shaky faith. I know this doesn't sound like Christmas yet, but it's going to get there, okay? Like, just stay with me. I have to get you the background first. You have to get the story around where we're headed, okay? So it starts with three guys. Ahaz is the king of Judah. That's the lower kingdom. Israel has now split into two kingdoms. You've got Judah on the bottom, right? And Ahaz is the king of Judah. Then you have Rezin, who is the king of Syria. That was a neighboring kingdom. And then you have Pekah, who was the king of Israel. That's the upper kingdom. That's like the other ten tribes. Okay? And so Syria and Israel have now created this alliance, and they're coming against Judah. They're coming to attack and try to take control of Judah and to, to make it um, for their benefit. And that's why it says, when they, it says it, they came uh, to wage war against Jerusalem. That's synonymous. All right? Jerusalem was the main town in Judah, and so like, that's where they're coming. And it says here, when they came, the heart of Ahaz, the king, and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind, which is just like a great Old Testament burn right there, right? Like, it's just like, you shake like the trees in the wind, right? Like, you, just, you just hear that, right? Like, and so they're like, they were shaking with fear. And it calls them here, when it says this, it says that they were the house of David. Right, so he keeps changing names, right? It's still the same people. It's still Judah, Jerusalem, all the same. But here he calls them the house of David as a reminder. To remind them where they came from. Because if we go back in history, God gave a promise to King David when he was on the throne that one of his descendants, one of his sons, would always reign in Judah. And Ahaz is one of David's sons. It's one of his descendants. But Ahaz here, he's failing to believe the promise. He's failing to remember what God said and failing to believe that God will fulfill what he told his father David. He lacks the faith that David had. And because of his shaky faith, he would not trust in God's promise. He would not trust in God's power. Let's keep reading. Look at verse 3. It says, And the Lord said to Isaiah, Isaiah is the prophet in the land at this point in time, it says, go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear Jashub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. And say to him, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not, let, do not let your heart be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. At the fierce anger of Rezin in Syria and the son of Ramalia, because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Ramalia has devised evil against you, saying, let us go up against Judah to, uh, and terrify it, and let us conquer it ourselves and set up the son of Tabeel as king in the midst of it. But thus says the Lord. Here's his response. It shall not stand. It shall not come to pass. For the head of Syria is Damascus, and the head of Damascus is Rezin. 
And within 65 years, Ephraim will be shattered from being a people. And the head of Ephraim is Samaria, and the head of Samaria is the son of Ramalia. If you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. So God sends Isaiah here to the king. And he says, hey, go, go help the king out here, right? He's, he's not thinking rightly. He's, not, he's, he's off. His, his faith is shaky. Like, see if you can help this guy out. Go and correct him. He says, take your son, uh, Shir Jashub, which is just kind of like a little extra kind of bonus right here in the prophecy. Because Isaiah's son, his name means a remnant shall return. And so in the midst of what he's getting ready to tell Ahaz, he's kind of also giving him this promise of like, hey, things are about to get bad, but I got you. Right? There's both judgment and there's hope in his name. A remnant, meaning some bad things are going to happen to Judah, and it's going to get whittled all the way down to a small group of people. But that small group of people shall return to the presence of the Lord. Hope is not lost. Even in the hard stuff, hope is not lost. So he says, go and take your son and say to Ahaz, be careful, be quiet, do not fear, and do not let your heart be faint. In other words, don't worry about these two fools over here. Right? Like, I've, I've got this. He says, it shall not stand and it shall not come to pass. If you just have faith in me, I will take care of this. And then he kind of, in some poet, poetic language here, he says, hey, resin and the son of Ramalia, they're just men, right? You think they're big. You think it's a big deal because you've got these countries and you've got these armies. They're just men. I'm God. Who are you going to trust? He says, within 65 years, I will end them as a people. Like, this is nothing. He's trying to reassure Ahaz. But then he, he ends with this statement. He says, if you are not firm in faith, you will not be firm at all. Ahaz was not firm in his faith. Because even after this warning from Isaiah, rather than trusting God to deliver him and his people, another book of the Bible in the history section tells us that he's going to turn to the kingdom of Assyria. So he's going to call out to another kingdom, to another king, to come and to help him fight against Syria and Israel to defend them. He believed in another man's power more than he believed in God's power. His faith was in Assyria, not in the Lord. And as a result, ultimately Judah will fall. It will fall physically, just like it has fallen spiritually in their faith. Because they cannot be firm as a people of God with shaky faith. We cannot be firm as a people of God with shaky faith. You know, as we talk about Christmas, the words that we most often see kind of associated with Christmas are things like hope and peace and joy and love. But this week when I was doing some research, I, I read an article it was entitled, Jingle Bell Croc. And the article was relaying this survey that they had done at Christmas with Americans. And after surveying uh, several thousand Americans, they said that 88% of Americans feel that the holiday season is 
the most stressful time of the year. Not the most wonderful time of the year. That's what we sing, but we don't feel that way. We feel that it's the most stressful time of the year. And they gave more specifics. They said 56% of people are anxious about the extra financial strain in the holidays. 48% of people are anxious about finding the right gifts for that family member or that friend that they're going to like it and that's going to go well. 35% are anxious over family events and get-togethers that are coming up and having to see people and have conversations and relationships. And 29% are anxious about putting up their decorations. I just don't, and then it's not a problem, right? Like, but like, so for some people, like, that's a stressor, right? Like, how's my house look? What do other people think? It's the appearance, right? And all these things, all these things that we do at Christmas that are supposed to bring us joy, right? We do these things because they're supposed to be fun. They're supposed to be good, and yet they produce so much anxiety instead. Because secretly, deep down inside, we're hoping that these things are going to fill us up. That they're somehow going to fill our cup in a way that other things can't. We're hoping in materialism that if we just get the right stuff this year that we'll finally be happy. We're hoping that by pleasing others and getting them that right gift that they'll finally like us. And we'll finally feel better about ourselves because they've fed into that identity for us. Or if I can just have the right conversation with my aunt or my cousin or my dad this, this Christmas, like finally it will, we'll be able to get to a good place. And the relationship won't be broken anymore. Or if people can just see me in a certain way and, and think that we're successful, then we keep looking for hope in all the wrong places. We're searching at Christmas for hope, for peace, for joy, for love. In the parties and in the presents and in the people. And all those things are great. Don't get me wrong. I'm not a Scrooge. I love Christmas. It's my favorite time of the year. But none of those things can carry the weight of our expectations. They just can't. That well will come up dry every time. Because only Jesus, only the Lord, has the power and the presence to be what we need to fill us up at Christmas. And so if we're not pressing into that, if we're not turning to him, if we're turning to these other things to help us, like Ahaz turned to the other king, then we're going to come up short. And God's going to say, you're not firm in your faith because you're trusting in these other things. If I'm hoping in anything other than Jesus, I am not firm in faith. If my hope isn't in any of those other things, I'm not firm in my faith this Christmas. And that's going to be a problem. Let's keep reading Ahaz's story. Look at verse 10. It says, again, notice that word, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he said, Hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, 
a virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. You're like, oh, Christmas, yeah, okay. Now we're there. Number two, as the unseen sovereign, God received false worship. As the unseen sovereign, God received false worship. So again, it says, again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz. So this is the second time. He went to Ahaz once. Ahaz didn't listen. He's going to give him a second chance. He's, he's going he's to give him mercy. He's going to extend some grace toward him. He's like, hey, one more chance for you to get this right, for you to turn back to God in faith. He says, ask a sign of the Lord. He's like, I know, you, I know your faith is shaky right now. I know you don't have it, so ask for a sign, whatever you want, and I'll do it, and I'll prove to you. I'll prove my power. I'll prove my presence to you once again. Just ask for a sign. He says, let it be deep as Sheol, which is another word for hell, or high as heaven. So he's like, not, not just some physical sign, not just some like easy thing to do, like, like the biggest, most supernatural sign you can think of. Ask for that, and I'll do it. God was ready to show Ahaz his power so that he could believe, so that he could worship. And Ahaz's response is, I will not ask. I will not put the Lord to the test. Which at first kind of sounds good, right? It almost kind of sounds like, oh, God, I, it's okay. You don't have, I believe. But that's not Ahaz's heart. He's faking it. He's feigning humility when in reality he doesn't believe. He's like, nah, I'm good. Thanks, God, but no thanks. I'm good. That's really what he's In reality, Ahaz was a hypocrite. He said he believed in the God of his people, but he didn't. He didn't. And this is why Isaiah responds to him the way he does. And not just to him, but to the whole nation. And notice again here, when he responds, he calls them the house of David. Again. So he's like, all of you, all of God's people. This is way beyond you now, Ahaz. Like we're, This is much bigger than just this moment. He says, you weary my God. In other words, God's fed up. He's fed up with you and your shaky faith and the people. He's, he's, he's cared for you. He's led you. He's loved you. He's he protected you. And you won't turn to him again. You're out of chances. He says, but the Lord himself. The Lord himself, the true king. You think you're the king. You think the king of Assyria. Like, no, no. God himself, the true king, he is going to give you a sign. And the you there is plural. So not just you, Ahaz, but you, all the people of God. All the people of God throughout all generations. He's about to give you a sign, a sign that is higher than the heavens and deeper than Sheol, something that is so supernatural and so big that no one else could ever do it but God himself. He says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. God, God's sign is a promise of hope that reaches beyond Ahaz, beyond this moment in history, to all the people of God throughout all generations. A sign that he is worthy to be worshipped forever. 
he goes on to talk more about this. Look at verse 15. He says, He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the day that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. It says, In that day the Lord will whistle for the fly that is at the end of the streams of Egypt and for the bee that is in the land of Assyria. And they will all come and settle in the steep ravines and in the clefts of the rock and on all the thorn bushes and on all the pastures. And in that day, the Lord will shave with a razor that is hired beyond the river with the king of Assyria, the head and the hair of the feet, and will sweep away the beard also. Verse 21, in that day, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And because of the abundance of milk that they give, he will eat curds for everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. And in that day, every place where there used to be a thousand vines worth a thousand shekels of silver will become briars and thorns. With bow and arrows, a man will come there, for all the land will be briars and thorns. And as for all the hills that used to be hoed with a hoe, you will not come there for fear of briars and thorns, but they will become a place where cattle are let loose and where sheep tread. So basically he's saying, the Lord is going to bring upon you, because of your unbelief, because of your lack of worship, the Lord is going to bring upon you the king of Assyria. The same king that you turned to in hope and in faith that he was going to save you and protect you and help you, God's going to use him to show you that he is the Lord. You see, again, if we go back into the history of Israel, we find out that when Ahaz made an alliance with Assyria, when he called out to them to come help, he had to give them a tribute. Right? He had to pay them. He had to give him a tribute of gold. And do you know where he got the gold? He took it out of the temple. He took the gold that was meant to be for the worship of God, and he gave it to the king of Assyria as he worshipped him and asked him to come save him instead. This is a worship issue. And so God says, now I'm going to use that king to show you that I'm still in control. And he starts to lay out the details of the coming judgment. He says, the Lord will whistle for the fly and the bee. Those represent the armies of Egypt and the armies of Assyria that are going to come and conquer Syria and conquer Israel and eventually conquer Judah. He says, the Lord will shave with a razor. In other words, they will be disgraced and demeaned in society. Back then, if someone forcibly sh shaved the hair off of your face or your head, like that was like a super dishonoring thing. So he's using that as kind of an imagery here. He says, where there used to be vines, there will now be briars and thorns. In other words, all your financial provision, all the stuff that you had, all the stuff that I've blessed you with, it's all going to be gone. You're going to lose all of it. And he said, all this will happen before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. In other words, within the span, all of this is going to happen within the span of a child's innocence. And in fact, if we go into the history, both Syria and Israel will fall within 13 years of this prophecy. Exactly as God said. And Judah will be under the power and control of Assyria as well. But in the midst of all of this judgment, in the midst of all of what's happening here, God still gives a glimmer of hope. 
He says there, a man will keep alive a young cow and two sheep. And everyone who is left in the land will eat curds and honey. So, again, it's kind of both a judgment and a hope at the same time. He's like, listen, all you're going to have left is just a few animals. And you're going to have to live on what they produce. But the good news is, there's going to be so few of you left that you'll be able to live on that. So you're not going to start. But those few that are left is the remnant. It's the people that God was keeping for himself to continue to move the story forward. To continue to, the, to further the faith in the, the redemption story that he's writing here. And it's that remnant that will eventually experience and see the miraculous sign that he prophesied back in verse 14. There was a store owner one Christmas that was out shopping with his son. And they were going around getting gifts, and they happened to run into another store owner that he was friends with in their town. So they were kind of, you know, talking, catching up. Hey, hey Merry Christmas. How's it going? How, how's your store doing? And they were just, both just kind of like just, you know, talking about how great the season had been. Like it had just been a really fruitful season for their stores and very profitable, and people had been spending lots of money. And, and, so they, and, and the father said, it's just, been like, it's just been the best Christmas ever for us. And uh, so they finished kind of their conversation. They started walking away, and they went, on, went about their shopping. And the father noticed that the son was, was kind of acting weird after that. Like he was just kind of not himself, kind of withdrawn. And he said, uh, hey, what's, what's going on? Is something, is something, something wrong? And he said, yeah, just when you were talking to Mr. Johnson back there, like you said that this was the best Christmas ever. And he was like, well, yeah, son. It's like we've done really well this year. Like God's really, you know, we've been really profitable. He's really blessed our store, and it's been really great. And the son said, okay, yeah, I understand that. He's like, I just, I just thought that the, that the first Christmas was the best Christmas ever. <laughs> right? Like kids. <laughs> but again, that's just all of us. It's just so easy for our hearts and for our minds to start going in that direction. And looking at all the circumstances and all the things around us and all the stuff, engaging good or bad based on what's happening in the moment. And forget that the best thing about Christmas, the best thing is that Jesus came to earth for us. That's what makes it best. And that's true every year, no matter what's happening out here. There's always opportunity to worship Jesus who came to earth for us regardless of what else is going on around us. I know we're all here at church on Sunday. Like, we all would say, yes, Christmas is about Jesus. We say it with our mouths. We sing the songs. We do all the stuff. But do we say it with our lives? Worship doesn't just happen on Sundays. Worship doesn't just happen with words. Worship happens with our lives. How we spend our time at Christmas. How we spend our money at Christmas. What we read, what we watch, what we discuss. How we prioritize our schedules and what makes the cut and what doesn't. What are we really giving tribute to this Christmas? What are we really giving, what are we really saying is best? 
What are we really worshiping this Christmas with our lives? If I'm paying tribute to anything more than Jesus, I'm engaging in false worship. Ahaz thought he was just hiring somebody to come help. When in reality, he was worshiping that king more than God. Anytime we give our time, our energy, our, our money, our thoughts, anything to something else more than Jesus, that's a worship act. It's false worship. So we see shaky faith and we see false worship and God couldn't have that. But thankfully, he still gives us a promise in the middle of it. Look at verse 14. It says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. Point number three, as the incarnate king, God received humble submission. As the incarnate king, God received humble submission. Look, it says right here, he says, behold, the virgin shall conceive. Now, let's talk about that for just a second. That's a super controversial line these days. The big question around this verse is, does the Hebrew word that was originally written, did it actually mean virgin? Is that what the meaning of that word is? Or did it just mean a young woman? If we were to be just completely, tra- completely like one for one on this, it would best be translated maybe maiden. Meaning an unmarried woman who is still chaste right, who hasn't been with a man. Now, we see this confirmed in the Septuagint. The Septuagint is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, right? So at some point, Greek language started growing in the area, so they translated the Old Testament that was originally in Hebrew into Greek, and they translated it 200 years before Jesus was born, right? 200 years before before Jesus was born, and when they translated it, they used the Greek word for virgin. Because that was the common understood meaning of the Hebrew word in this time period, when it was written. The only reason we second-guess it today is because some people don't want to accept the miracle of the virgin birth. It didn't come into question until people started dealing with that issue. It always meant that. And we see that even in the emphasis of the verbs around that word. Notice it says, the virgin, she shall conceive. That's the whole focus of the point, right? And yes, that is shocking to hear, that a virgin shall conceive. But it's not untenable because God just said, ask for a sign that is deeper than Sheol and higher than heaven, right? Ask for the biggest sign, and that's exactly what he gave, the miraculous birth of his own son on the earth. And he said, she shall call his name Emmanuel. Emmanuel means God with us. God with us. God coming to earth to be with us. Of course It's going to be miraculous. He couldn't come any other way. It wouldn't even make sense. And this special name that he gives 
to his son is both a rebuke to Ahaz and to Judah. He's like, I, I, I told you already that I am with you. But since you don't believe me, and let me show you. And it's a promise to the faithful remnant that one day God will be with them again. And so to see the fulfillment of this promise, now let's flip over to Luke chapter 1, verse 26. Familiar story here for Christmas. Luke chapter 1, verse 26. It says this, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. And he came to her and said, Greetings, O favored one, the Lord is with you. But she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever in his kingdom, and of his kingdom there will be no end. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be, since I am a virgin? And the angel answered her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you, and therefore the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who was called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her. So notice in this story, in this short story here, the word virgin shows up three times. It's repeated three times. It is the focus of this passage because this is the moment. This is the fulfillment. Mary is the chosen one to fulfill the promise of God that he was going to come to his people. And it explains to us how this happens. It says the Holy Spirit will come upon you. That it will be a miraculous conception. That God will miraculously put the baby inside of Mary through the work of the Holy Spirit. This is God coming to earth could not be anything less than miraculous. And to confirm it's him, he gives us a lengthy description. He says he will be great. He will be the son of the Most High. The he will have the throne of his father David. He will reign forever. His kingdom will have no end. And most of all, it says he will be holy, the son of God. That description can describe no one else than God himself. And so God came down in fulfillment of his own miraculous promise. He came down to us. His presence with men. God with us. Emmanuel. That's the heart of Christmas. That's the origin. That's the theology that makes all of this worth celebrating. And Mary's response is exactly the response that we want to have. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. 
Let it be to me according to your word. Unlike Ahaz, Mary had faith in the Lord. She believed. She believed the promise. She believed his word. Unlike Ahaz, she worshiped the Lord. She called him master. She didn't use that word, but she said, I am your servant, implying he is the master. That's a worship move. And Mary submitted to the Lord. She followed his will. She said, let your will be done according to me. Your plan, not my plan. I'm in. Friends, if God is with us, there is no other response. This is the only response that makes sense. That if the God of the universe came down to be with us, submission is all we have to offer. You know, God not only came down in the birth of Christ to be with us, but ultimately, as we sang earlier, to save us. This is why we relentlessly talk about the gospel around here. Because we need that reminder that all of us, men, we are sinners. We are born with sinful hearts and sinful minds. We rebel against God. We disobey his word. We are an offense to a holy God. And because of that, we deserve his wrath. We deserve his punishment. We would deserve everything that Ahaz got and much, much more. Death separated from God in hell. But out of his love, out of his grace for us, he came. He came in the person of Jesus Christ. He was born in a manger to a virgin on the earth. And then he walked a perfect and sinless life with the destination of the cross, going to stand in our place as a substitute and to pay for our sins, to take the death that we deserved, to put it on himself and stand in our place, and he went into the grave, and then three days later he rose back to life, proving that he was God and offering us salvation if we will believe and if we will submit to him. Just like Mary If you want to have this gift of salvation that God offers, you have to be like Mary. You have to have faith that Jesus was God and that he came down to die for our sin. And you have to worship and you have to submit to him as your Lord and Savior. This is Christmas. This is why he came. And if you haven't yet received that gift, that gift of salvation, that gift of forgiveness, that gift of cleansing from your sins and from your past, God offers it to you today. If you will believe and submit to him. God came down to call us to submission. Friends, Christmas is theological. It is. And praise God that it is. If it wasn't, none of us would have a hope in this world. It's all tied back to the incarnation. It's all tied back to Jesus' birth, God coming down to save us. And our hope continues as we submit to him, as we worship him, as we have our faith in him. He holds us firm until the day when he's coming back again to rescue us and to take us with him. 
He already came once, but he's coming a second time. And unlike most, the sequel is going to be better. Okay? That gets the best part. He's coming down again. But until he does, we're going to worship and we're going to submit to the God who is with us. Let's stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you this morning, God. We thank you for coming down to us when we had no hope of reaching up to you. We are just, Lord, just as you humbled yourself, just as you humbled yourself to come down to us, Lord, we humble ourselves before you today. Lord, we submit to you. We love you. We worship you. You are the Lord. You are the King who has come and rescue us. Lord, come and rescue us again, Lord Jesus. Fill our hearts with your Holy Spirit. Lord, call us to your grace. Come, come, Lord Jesus. Pray all this in Christ's name.